You know, it really is uncanny how these two games overlap. Welcome to the 200th episode of Game Theory. I mean, technically it's the 201st and a half episode, but I thought this felt more appropriate because it's solving FNAF with one final mega theory. So the 200th episode of Game Theory. Proud members of the Pink Guy Truthers Club. Now, for those of you who don't know, one of the longest held debates in FNAF theorydom is whether this murderer watching children die is the same as this murderer watching children die. Because of their different colors, they became dubbed Purple Guy and Pink Guy, the two most threatening colors. Taste the rainbow, slaughter the rainbow. Anyway, since FNAF 2, I have been opposed to this theory, and I can now confirm it is dead. Like a child wanting a mediocre slice of overpriced pizza dead. Ding dong, the witch is dead. One look at Scott's new strategy guide for the series, The Freddy Files, confirms it. Page 48, when describing the Foxy Go 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 minigame from FNAF 2, quote, Purple Guy is visible in the lower left corner of the room. There it is, clear as crystal. Purple guy in the corner. Now comes the super awkward question that I never thought I'd have to answer. Which purple guy? Cause there's two now, and if you didn't know that, strap in, it is gonna be a long episode. FNAF as a franchise has always been defined by questions. What was the missing children's incident? Who is purple guy? What's the deal with Balloon Boy? Seriously, what is the deal with Balloon Boy? But by FNAF 4, the games had just become a mire of unanswered questions where it was becoming harder and harder to tell the difference between a withered Freddy, a phantom Freddy, and a Nightmare Freddy, let alone a Golden Freddy versus a Golden Fred Bear. We had Fazbear Frights, Fazbear Pizzas, Fazbear Entertainment, Fredbear Diners, Fredbear and Friends, Missing Children, Crying Children, and Bites from pretty much every decade. Then came Sister Location, where between the Butter and Bongos, theorists, myself included, struggled to try and fit together a story told by animatronics that lie, hand units that lie, animatronics that fuse with other animatronics, and animatronics that fuse together with humans, who then become purple and immortal. Needless to say, it was a lot. For me, what had become the scariest part of FNAF wasn't the jump scares, it was the lore. So you can understand why when the novels came out and offered what seemed to be simpler solutions, I hopped aboard. I started looking for more streamlined solutions within their pages, hunting for clues to the games in a place where they didn't exist, but kind of looked like they exist and probably should have existed but didn't exist, and the only thing I accomplished in the process was making things more complicated. So in all the time that FNAF 6 has been percolating in the back of Scott's mind brain, I've thrown out everything that I thought I knew about this series, and I've gone back to doing what I do best. Darn it. Basic counting. One Freddy button, two Freddy buttons, one foxy toe, two foxy toes. Only this time, I was aided by knowledge of where the series was headed, as well as Scott's latest release, The Freddy Files. It's a book that many others dismissed as merely an elongated strategy guide to the games, but to me, it was invaluable at filtering down years' worth of lore into the details that Scott himself deemed as the most important to focus on. And this entire process of starting at square one has helped me to see connections I never made before, enabling me to create the thing I was most scared of. 
a timeline. A series of events that explain key breadcrumbs that Scott has left for us along the way. And the more I looked, the more it all started to make sense. Now, while I could sit here and rattle off hexadecimal color codes and animatronic design features to painfully hammer out the timeline inch by inch, no one cares. Trust me, I know, I wrote two other versions of this script where I did exactly that, and both of them sucked. I was boring and confusing myself. It gets way too convoluted way too quickly when you dive into the details. But when I took a step back, I realized that the best way to understand FNAF at this point in history is to know that it's not a story about a haunted pizzeria, it's the story of a family. Meet the Aftons, a perfectly normal family of five. Father, daughter, son, older brother, and mother. And the secrets of the Fazbear timeline are actually buried in the fates of each one of these characters. We begin with William Afton, the original purple guy, the father, the one who starts this whole timeline with a story that's all too familiar to us by this point. He starts killing kids at bear-themed pizza restaurants. It starts back in the 70s. Should have given him a big purple afro there, Scott. FNAF 2 flashes us back to these origins showing us Purple Guy's first victim at Fred Bear's family diner before flashing forward to show another five victims of the Purple Guy in the FNAF 2 location and potentially yet another five victims in the FNAF 1 location. And he would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those meddling kids. Literally, because his victims refused to stay dead. The soul of the first child enters the puppet, who then gives life to the other children by preserving their spirits in the bodies of the other Fazbear animatronics. Give gifts, give life. We've all known this for years and Scott even confirmed it, but we had to start somewhere since this is where the story begins. But where the story heads to next might surprise you. Sister Location. More specifically, the mini-games from Sister Location, where we meet Afton's adorable green-eyed daughter, no name. Doesn't help that none of these characters have a name. You see, old Billy Afton isn't content with manually killing kids anymore. He's busy figuring out new ways to mass murder the youth of this nation, and he does what any good business owner ought to do, outsources it to the machines. He designs a series of fun-time animatronics with features specifically made for luring and capturing kids. We can see it on their blueprints, parental tracking, group... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hooping, deter and misdirect, parental voice sync, and once again, he would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those meddling kids. Or kid, in this case. His own daughter, in fact, who is so excited by the circus baby animatronic that she ignores her father's warnings to stay away from it and falls victim to the claw. In true FNAF fashion, she done gets herself scooped, goes on to possess Circus Baby, and that causes the eye color of Baby to shift from blue to green. The tragedy results in the spin-off restaurant Circus Baby's Pizza World closing down in one day. The day it opens, and the fun times get stored, as the trailers say, deep below ground where memories sleep, just waiting for the day that they become rentals one Afton down. Now, before we kill off the next Afton child, let's rewind a minute to explain why Afton's daughter getting turned into human Froyo goes here. Since this is a pretty extreme break from how most people understand the FNAF timeline, evidence the first, not only do we see the animatronics actively moving around their respective galleries, but their luring and capturing features were built with the specific intention of them acting as free-roaming robots, something that we know was phased out in the aftermath of the Bite of 87. We also know that this incident happens before Springlock suits 
parents get decommissioned. On night four of Sister Location, Baby traps you inside a Springlock suit and says this. You're inside something that came from my old pizzeria. I don't think it was ever used. At least not the way it was meant to be used. So Circus Baby and her pizzeria were from a time before the... Unfortunate incident at the sister location involving multiple and simultaneous spring lock failures. Which prompted all spring locks to be banned, a.k.a. the Bite of 83. More on that whole thing in a minute. But perhaps the biggest clues to the timeline placement of the baby incident come from FNAF 4, what most of us have considered the first game in the timeline where the crying child gets bitten at his birthday party while psychic friend Fredbear... He's here, he's there, he's everywhere. Who are you gonna call? Psychic friend Fred Bear promises to put him back together. Throughout the game, the crying child, Afton's youngest son, keeps hearing the words, remember what you saw, repeated over and over to him. When the game first came out, the best I could do was speculate about what this was referring to, but now I think we have our answer. This moment. His sister getting scooped. The crying child saw this happen, thus prompting his fear of animatronics. And we know he saw it through one crucial design detail that Scott included. Look at how this kid's nightmares of Fred bear materialize. The stomach mouth. It's a design detail that we all overlooked, but there it is, positioned in the exact same way that baby rips in half to claw grip Afton's daughter. It's how a child would perceive that incident. And that's not all. It also explains why the Afton home has an empty girl's room in it. Something that Scott clearly thought was important for us to see, so why is it empty? Because the sister is gone. She's dead. She's a victim of William's sloppy kidnapping scheme. Just to be clear, I know a previous theory said this girl was baby, but she's not. It was a predictive theory based on visual similarities that didn't pan out. In Sister Location, Scott very clearly showed us that Afton's daughter doesn't wear her hair in pigtails and has a different color of hair than the pigtail girl in FNAF 4. And we all know how picky Scott is about colors. At least at this point in the series. He learned his lesson after the whole pink guy thing. That's not all. Ballora also gives us an interesting perspective as we move on to the next member of the Afton clan. Here's a big question that no one's thought to ask about this series yet. The mother. Mrs. Afton, where is she? I mean, don't get me wrong, adoption is a great thing, but something tells me that Slick Willie over here isn't the single father of three type. It was a question that I had never considered until the answer practically slapped me in the face while I was reading The Freddy Files. On page 127, Scott draws a very clear contrast between Funtime Freddy's voice system and the one belonging to Baby and Ballora. Quote, Funtime Freddy's audio seems pre-recorded and relates to kids and birthday parties, unlike Ballora and Circus Baby's audio, which is more complex." End quote. It's an interesting detail for Scott to specifically call out that I honestly never considered. Ballora is much more aware of her surroundings, responding in real time to movement in her chamber and not seeming to rely on pre-recorded lines like the more rudimentary animatronics. I it seems like more than just a coincidence that the only other robot possessing this level of speech ability is the one that we know has Afton's daughter inside of her. Up until now, we've all been quick to write off Ballora as just this weird Rule 34 bizarre new addition to the animatronic roster, but is it possible that she has a bigger part in this story than we all realized? This is far from speculation. Another major clue hides in the song that she sings, one that Scott draws particular attention to in her character profile in Freddy Files. The lyrics go, Why do you hide inside your walls when there is music in my halls all i see is an empty room no more joy an empty tune it's so good to sing all day to dance to spin to fly away 
This reference to an empty tomb devoid of joy resembling a vacant tomb is the same sort of language you would hear from a parent who had just lost a child, with the child's bedroom acting as a sort of tomb reminding them of their loss. Could it be that this song is referencing the daughter's empty room that we just talked about from FNAF 4? And if that's the case, does that make Ballora's true identity... Mrs. Afton. Ballora is motherly in a way that all the other animatronics aren't, with the mini Renas as her children. And she's a much older and more mature-looking robot than anything, anything that we've seen throughout the series. If this were truly the case, based on her song, it sounds like after the daughter done got herself scooped, William retreated into his work and probably a fair bit of child murder, hiding in his private room to bury his grief. That's what Ballora's line, hiding inside your walls, is referencing. It would also explain why William has abandoned his other two sons by the year 1983, the time we see FNAF 4 roll around. He's too grief-stricken, leaving the older brother to be the one to have to take care of the crying child. Somewhere before 1983, his wife leaves him, or dies, or something, it's not really that important, and Afton preserves her memory inside the animatronic Ballora. And with that, another Afton gets buried in the basement. Which brings us to 1983 and leaves the men of the household as the last one standing. Crying child, older brother Michael, and the fate of William. One gets bit, one gets scooped, and one gets... sprung? Ugh, I don't know, that sounds kind of bad. So of the five Aftons, last time we had killed off two. Mother and daughter who go on to become Baby and Ballora. Afton's daughter getting clawed results in the immediate closure of Circus Baby's Pizza World, leading the company to retire the creepy, rosy-cheeked characters deep underground where memories sleep. But now let's talk about one question I haven't addressed yet, and one that was on everyone's mind during the launch to Sister Location. Where is Chica in all this? For the first time in these games, one of the core four animatronics was just gone. That seems significant, right? And it is. But it touches on an element of these games that we tend to brush aside. That there's a business element running through all of them. Corporate doublespeak and liability talk coming from phone guy, parent companies in the form of Fazbear Entertainment, franchising with sister location. So what if Chica is missing from Circus Baby's gang because she was her own independent mascot at the time? It's not just wild speculation either. In the Scott Games source code leading up to sister location's release, we got all sorts of hints in the form of animatronic maintenance schedules, but mixed in there was a reference to something surprising. Chica's Party World, mentioned by name, definitive proof that the character was the mascot of another business existing at the same time as Circus Babies, which was also a client of Afton Robotics. Chica isn't in sister location because she isn't a part of the family yet. She's still a solo act, but we know by FNAF 4 she's clearly a part of the Fredbear and Friends lineup. So it would seem that Fazbear Entertainment grew by merging with or buying out the other animal-themed restaurants in the area, with Chica being the last addition to the crew and why she's a part of the series from here on out. So no, theorists, contrary to popular belief, it wasn't just Scott trying to reduce the amount of creepy, poultry-themed fan art. So let's be real here for a second, bibs aren't sexy. Just, I'm just saying it now. Calling it like a season. So Fazbear Entertainment decides to go all-in on the animal-themed robots because the whole clown thing was just a stupid idea. I mean, seriously, William, do some market research. Americans are more afraid of clowns than global warming. Know your consumer, man! Anyway, in FNAF 4, Fredbear's expanded to have himself some friends, and has become so popular that they're in full sellout mode, complete with plushies, toys, a TV show, and the ever-popular item, masks. Get them now, because I hear they're selling like a god church. None of this would exist if this were 
truly the first location of a local pizza chain, confirming that this location in FNAF 4 is not where it all started like many have been assuming. What we're seeing here is something else, presumably what the TV says. Fredbear and Friends, a hybrid restaurant of the old Fredbear characters and the new spin-off ones where every character has their own springlock suit. Notice that the FNAF 4 Nightmare animatronics all have five fingers. The only other animatronic to have that feature? Springtrap. Five fingers, because the humans have to wear the suits. Which leads us to one of the biggest debates in this franchise. Is this 1983 or 1987? The bite at the birthday party makes it seem like it's 1987, but the TV says that it's 1983. Never before has so much nerd rage been prompted by discussion over trademark dates. Rage that lives on to this day. But now I can finally bring home to the storm. This is 1983. We know this based on a recent Reddit post Scott made on the subject of whether or not he's ever retconned his story. Quote, The truth is that I've done one actual retcon in the series, although I'm not going to say where it was. There have been other times, however, when my original intentions didn't come across clearly. In those instances, I make a point to clarify in the next game. I used sister location to clear up a misconception from FNAF 4. End quote. Reading this, the obvious misconception from FNAF 4 was the year the events of the game took place, which, true to his word, he claimed clarified via sister location and the private room camera code of 1983, 1983. When Michael Afton revisits his father's control room decades after the fact, he sees that all along William had been surveilling their family home using cameras that were password protected by one of the most sorrowful dates of his life. Regardless, neglectful father William participates in the worst bring your son to work day program ever by taking his traumatized son to a restaurant filled with robots he's afraid are gonna scoop him. And solidly in the no help column is his older brother who taunts him mercilessly for his fears. The story comes to a climax when the brother's teasing goes too far, getting his younger brother chomped at his own birthday party. At the end of the game, William, through his psychic friend Fredbear Observation Plushies, patent pending, promises to put his son back together. Except he's too late. We hear a hospital flatline faintly in the background as the cutscene ends, meaning that the child dies. But that's far from where his story ends. He appears in every other FNAF game because even though Daddy fails to put him back together, miraculously the crying child finds his way into becoming the ghostly Golden Freddy. For proof as to why, let's speed things up. Remember what Scott said in his Reddit post, he tries to clarify things in the next game, and between FNAF 3 and FNAF 4, there's a point he made sure to clarify, the Happiest Day minigame. Notice the masks across the two games, not just symbolic imagery, but a direct reference to the masks worn during the crying child's failed birthday, Freddy, Foxy, Bonnie, Chica. The restaurant layout is also the same, just mirror flipped, with three party tables decorated with green, yellow, red, purple, and blue balloons. And it's a birthday party, as evidenced by the cake. The puppet is recreating the birthday that was stolen from the crying child, and the mask that the crying child is seen wearing, Golden Freddy. But that's not all. The crying child gets taken by death, aka Nightmare, an animatronic who just so happens to have an inverted Golden Freddy color palette. Yellow hat and tie with a black body as opposed to a yellow body with black accessories. Coincidence? I think not. It's also worth noting that Nightmare is one of only two canon animatronics to have a jump scare that's a static image with strange noises that crashes the game. The other, Golden Freddy. Which leaves us with two. William and Michael, father and son. Purple guy and other purple guy. The rest of the timeline is the story of a serial killer father and the son who's following behind, retracing William's steps to undo his father's cruel work and free the spirits of the dead children. This next bit we're all pretty familiar with since it's based on evidence from Phone Guy. The bite of 83 causes spring locks to get discontinued. William, acting as a technician across all the Fazbear restaurants, is responsible for handling the recalled suits and starts using the Golden Bonnie outfit to lure children into the secret safe rooms hidden in the back of each restaurant where he'll be safely off camera. 
camera. He first strikes on June 26th at the FNAF 1 location. This murder, dubbed the missing children's incident, eventually gets the place shut down, but results in Foxy, Bonnie, Chica, and Freddy getting newly murdered children to power their engines. Those animatronics, along with the puppet, get shifted to the FNAF 2 location along with some new toy robots linked to a criminal database to prevent a mass murder from happening again. Even some old favorites get pulled out of retirement, specifically Balloon Boy. And with that full roster, Freddy Fazbear's Pizza has its grand reopening. Now posing as a security guard, William, with his spring lock crank in hand, not phone, strikes again, causing the place to get investigated. William flees the scene, leaving the day shift security guard position open. Jeremy Fitzgerald moves up to fill the empty slot, but gets himself bit by the agitated animatronics in an event that comes to be known as the Bite of 87, an event that forces the company to cease any free-roaming activities of the animatronics from that day forward. The toy animatronics get scrapped for just sucking at spotting a child murderer, and the old robots get stored back at the original FNAF 1 location. At this point, though, William knows that these things are alive and angry at him, so he tries to dismantle them using the safe room as his cover. And it would have worked out, too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. Or at least their meddling spirits, because he didn't calculate that the spirits could live on without the animatronic shells. He tries to defend himself against these ghosts by ducking into his trusty murder suit, but his haste, coupled with the moisture of the room, causes the spring locks to fail and Afton to get skewered inside of the big yellow bunny. The company, trying to save face, and let's be honest, their stock value, covers up William's crime spree by sealing off the safe room with the dying William Afton, now Springtrap, inside. I know, I know, but Michael might be Springtrap. We're getting there. The management instructs all Fazbear employees to behave as though those safe rooms never existed, and another Afton falls victim to a horrible fate. Only this time, he absolutely, totally deserved it. But now, let's look at the final Afton, Michael. His story begins with the main gameplay of Sister Location, where Mike Afton, who we learn looks a lot like his father, They didn't recognize me at first, but then... They thought I was you. Is sent by dear old dad to put his sister back together. A promise that William makes to apparently a lot of his kids. This request of Michael presumably happened some years earlier when Mike was still a child or before Afton ran away to escape murder charges. As implied by him saying, I'm going to come find you. Mike succeeds in saving Baby, but gets himself scooped in the process, having his innards replaced with innards. As we see throughout the canon Custom Night cutscenes, this causes his body to slowly decay, turning purple, until Ennard abandons ship to look for a fresher body that'll draw less suspicion. Michael miraculously survives his Ennard enema, and here's where all sorts of puzzle pieces start to fall together. First, we know his name is Michael, but that he also goes by Mike, as shown by his name tag on Hand Unit. This immediately connects us to FNAF one's Mike Schmidt, the original security guard, a guy who eventually gets fired for tampering with the animatronics and his odor. It was the first game in the series, so we all thought it was a funny joke, but now we know better. Scott doesn't do jokes. Not only does the name Mike match, but a rotting flesh sack with no innards would definitely be pretty smelly. And if, true to sister location, Mike's mission is to free the spirits of children killed by his dad, he would absolutely be guilty of tampering with the animatronics. It even provides us for an explanation as to why the animatronics would be trying to kill him in the first place. We hear it in Sister Location. He looks just like his father, which, man, William, if your face looks like a rotting corpse, might be time to consider getting some plastic surgery. But if all that wasn't enough, we can even tie it in with Golden Freddy's behavior in the game. Anytime Golden Freddy appears in FNAF 1, he's accompanied with the flashing text of, It's me. As we just saw, Golden Freddy contains the spirit of the crying child, Mike's brother. So the It's me is one 
brother speaking to another brother, making him aware that he's here, he's present, and in need of spiritual release. Now, knowing that Mike Afton and Mike Schmidt are one and the same, rewind to FNAF 2 and the character Fritz Smith, a security guard fired on his first day on the job for what? Odor and tampering with the animatronics. Coincidence? Absolutely not. Scott doesn't do coincidences. Michael Afton is literally going location to location, undoing the sins of his father's past and stinking up the places as he do. Like Michael says at the end of Custom Night, I'm going to come find you. And find him he does at Fazbear Frights. But before we get to the end of the timeline, let's address the elephant in the room. The fact that Purple Guy is established to be the killer and Michael is clearly shown to be purple in the Custom Night. So wouldn't that make him the killer? No, as much as I hate to say it, there are actually two Purple Guys, but only one real Purple Guy. Admittedly, I left that purposely vague for dramatic effect, but let me explain. Or better yet, let FNAF World explain. In it, you recruit a familiar looking purple sprite onto your team and he says this. Don't confuse me with the actual purple guy. I'm just a game sprite. And there's the difference. One of these characters is physically purple. That character is Michael. And the other is just a placeholder on the screen. A sprite representing a shadowy figure who, because the background of the minigames happens to be black, had to be colored differently. And that color was purple. But you don't even have to get that meta. It's made pretty darn clear in Sister Location's intro that William is the one who built the animatronics intended to capture kids, whereas Michael is established as the one who's trying to save them. Even the timeline supports this. The murders date back all the way to Fredbear Family Diner in the 70s with a guy who's old enough to drive. There's no chance that Michael, the son, would be the right age to be the original purple guy. And lastly, if you believe that Michael Afton is also Mike Schmidt and Fritz Smith, as the evidence suggests, then the phone guy calls give you an alibi. Phone guy is talking to you about other security guards being investigated for murder, which implies that you yourself are not guilty. Mike's efforts to atone for his family's past proved to be successful. Game by game, we see him piecing together the family reunion. Sister Location saw him free both Ballora and Baby. Then in FNAF 3's Fazbear Fright, Afton's younger brother, now in the form of Golden Freddy, receives peace via the Happiest Day minigame. Even the spirits inside Freddy, Foxy, Bonnie, and Chica get exercised by Mike, which is why the good ending of FNAF 3 shows four empty, unlit animatronic heads. That's also why, come the main gameplay of FNAF 3, the only animatronic that's still active in real life is Springtrap. Mike has been successful at appeasing every other one of the spirits, leaving him alone with dear old dad. Gets a job as security guard of Fazbear Fright, and shortly after, the creators of the attraction stumble across FNAF 1's secret room, with the remains of Mike's father spring trapping around inside. Mike sets the place on fire to finish off his killer dad once and for all, because seriously, did you really think that building just spontaneously caught on fire? Fires in fictional stories always have a dramatic purpose, and Mike would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for that meddling father, who, in both the FNAF 3 newspaper clippings and Sister Location's special ending, is shown to have survived the fire and is now undoubtedly more bloodthirsty than ever. The end. Question mark. Hallelujah. The craziest part of all this is when you actually stop and look at the story, there really isn't a need for FNAF 6. Outside of the return of Springtrap cliffhanger and revealing what's inside the box, yeah, remember that, everything else pretty much has an answer. Sure, there are still parts of the tale that could be more fleshed out, like the origins of the puppet or what happens after Ennard gets ejected from Mike, but at this point, all the characters have completed their story arcs. The family is reunited and the spirits are all at peace. It's actually pretty poetic. It took nearly 20 theories and literally weeks of my life studying these breadcrumbs to get there, but we did it. We got to a solution that fit together practically all of the loose ends, and that's pretty darn special. Thank you for being a part of that journey with me. 
it's been an incredible ride. I have no doubt that this isn't 100% correct, but you know what? It's an explanation I'm happy with. One that I feel provides a sense of closure to the series, and one that I'm gonna let stand as my final word on the five games worth of series lore until a new installment. But before I end all this, let me give the hardest of hardcore fans one more deep dive on the whole Will Trap versus Mike Trap debate. Let's speed it up. Most hardcore fans believe Mike is the purple guy currently in the Springtrap suit, and it's easy to see why. His voice is modified with an electronic effect in the custom night ending, Springtrap pops up at the end of Mike's final words, I'm going to come find you. and the purple guy sprite who ends up in the suit is seen releasing kids from their animatronics. However, these are easily explained away. We've heard Springtrap talk before, or should I say gurgle before in FNAF 3? And Mike's voice is very different from Springtrap's. Springtrap popping up on I'm going to come find you could very easily just be a visual storytelling element where Mike is stating his mission to track his father down. We visually see that he did it, but oh no, cliffhanger, dad ain't dead. And we already talked about how William could very well be dismantling the animatronics to try and stop their attack. So it seems like a pretty balanced debate, or at least it does until you look at the timeline. Based on order of events, William inside Springtrap is undeniable. Whoever is working as Nightguard and Fazbear Fright can't just be some random guy off the street. It's someone who has seen both the FNAF 1 and FNAF 2 animatronics, considering he's having hallucinations of Mangle, Balloon Boy, and the puppet, as well as the first-generation version of Chica. The only person who worked at both of those places outside of William Afton himself is Michael Afton. Also, we hear that Circus Baby's rentals appeared in the wake of Freddy's Pizza being closed, but the safe rooms were sealed with Springtrap inside while Freddy's Pizza was still open. That's why there's a whole series of phone guy tapes telling employees about the safe rooms, how to use them, and then, oh wait, no, we're closing them down, pretend like they never existed. <laughs> Springtrap, that would mean he never would have had the opportunity to get souped and turn purple since Circus Baby's rentals wouldn't have opened at that point, and he would have been trapped in the walls of the FNAF 1 location in the Springtrap suit. Lastly, if Mike were Springtrap, then who set fire to Fazbear Fright? I guarantee that fire was intentional. It was meant to finish off the last awful pieces of Freddy's legacy, and Mike's really the only one possessing that sort of motive. William is the established killer who would be cocky thinking that he got away from the spirits by hiding in his golden bonnie suit, which seems very counter to how Mike behaves. Oh yeah, let's also not forget Scott confirmed our theories on the killer being in Springtrap years ago. If all of that doesn't convince you, well, I look forward to watching your research. Alright, 12 pages later, I'm finally ready to close this thing out. But hey, that's just a theory. A game theory. Thanks for watching.